Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Kidnor, founder of leading Australian podcast agency, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome back to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Climate change, homelessness, food shortages. Sometimes all of the issues in the world can feel utterly overwhelming. As a talented student, today's guest, Shami Hassan Chowdhury, often felt the same way. She knew she wanted to use her education, but for what purpose? It wasn't until her mother suddenly died from a preventable illness in Bangladesh that Shami knew what she wanted to do with her world-class achievements. In today's episode, we sit down with the co-founder of global youth-led organisation Awareness360 and water, sanitisation and hygiene, or WASH, activist Shomi Shadhuri to discuss the world's shocking sanitisation inequality, how entrepreneurs can find solutions to some of the world's biggest problems and why the power of storytelling is more convincing than statistics. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to our Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, welcome Shami. Tommy, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the amazing work you're doing as an activist and a social entrepreneur, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad you reached out. Amazing. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Right. Um, so to the listeners, my name is Shomi Hassan Chaudhuri, and I am from Bangladesh, also based in Bangladesh now. I was uh, earlier based in Malaysia. I stayed there for three and a half years. I was um, doing my college there. So I come from an economics background. Um, and uh, now I am a water sanitation and hygiene activist. I have an organization um, which I co-founded in 2014. It's called Awareness 360. So I'm uh, leading Awareness 360. And um, I'm also working as the operations manager for a Hong Kong-based travel tech company at the moment. And I'll soon be moving to Beijing, China, to uh, start my master's in global affairs at um, Tsinghua University as a Schwarzman Scholar. That's a little bit about me. Oh, <laughs> so amazing, Shomi. I When I looked into you, I was like, oh, my goodness, this girl is on fire. You know, she's doing absolutely everything. And it sounds so, so interesting. And I can't wait to dive deeper into kind of your non-for-profit and all the work you're doing. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, what was it like growing up in Bangladesh? You know, what was that time like for you? And how do you think it impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? 
Um, great question. I, I don't reflect on this kind of question that much, to be honest, but um, well, life was um, way simple, I would say. Um, like my, my, I had a very good family uh, time. Uh, you know, it was, I grew up in a, in a sort of a small town and later moved to the capital city. And um, like it was my, my mom and dad both used to work. So mostly, you know, when they would like my dad was based in Dhaka, the capital. So he would go to see us like every weekend. And then whenever my dad would be home, it's like a thing to go to this one restaurant, you know, for some family time. Um, so mostly because both my parents were working parents, I used to spend my time with my grandparents um and uh, yeah it was it was really like i was very busy i was very active um as a student so i was i used to like you know go to like music academy do dance do debate drama like all kind of stuff so mostly i would be busy with my own life like doing my studies and then after school activities um, a, a bit of community service activities as well and then it was mostly about you know spending the evening with family that's about it it was quite general and, and ordinary and simple i would say um, but definitely, like my my mom and dad, both of them have actually um, uh, like given me some values, which I'm very thankful for. Things like empathy, things like giving back, things like equality, treating people um, nicely, regardless of um, you know their their background, their socioeconomic status. So I have seen my family never. Um, you know, like we come from a very privileged background, I would say. And I have seen like my dad, you know, respecting like we have had, uh, let's say, ambassadors and like diplomats coming to our houses, you know, um, for, for dinners and whatever. And then I've seen my parents respecting uh, a diplomat just the same way as like someone like, let's say, a farmer or like um someone who who works uh, for us in like let's say our farm or something so I've seen them never differentiating them and I think those values have really um, been uh, imparted on me I would say and that and these are some things that I definitely have uh, felt um, myself uh, like using as you know I have gone into like the social entrepreneurship space and I've gotten to work with different kinds of backgrounds and you know so it was sort of easier for me to uh, you know, uh, just just work with them. I, I think so. Yeah, that that's a bit about my childhood. I love that, and I think you know, I love asking this question because I really do think it plays into who we are as people and kind of what we end up doing with our lives. You know, what what advice would you have to our peers out there listening when it comes to being empathetic, especially when perhaps we may not understand the person's upbringing, their background, and we may just find it difficult to connect with them. You know, what advice would you give to us around being empathetic, especially when it comes to our work and perhaps, you know, in in, in business even? Right. Um, you see, so when we talk about empathy, right, there are like three kinds of uh, empathy. I've, I've spoken about this in another interview as well, that um thing is let's say if i if i tell you that um michelle i i broke my arm you will definitely feel bad for me i mean it's a, it's a sad news right so you'll be oh i'm so sorry my friend that you broke your arm but then the next stage of empathy is where you know you will you will probably remember when you probably had an injury or, or you know somebody you've seen somebody closely suffering from an injury and you will connect to that feeling of pain right and then you'll you, you'll probably act like, oh, I'm so sorry. Show me that you broke your arm. I remember I broke my leg once and then it hurt really bad. I hope, you know, get well soon, et cetera. Et cetera. So this time you're really trying to put yourself in my shoes um, and trying to recall a similar experience that you probably have had or you've seen somebody going through that closely. But then the third kind of empathy is where you don't just want to feel how I'm feeling or just understand or empathize in like sort of in a shallow general level, but really trying to help me out of that situation. So maybe this time you will say, show me, I'm so sorry, I've had an injury. How can I help? Can I take care of your kid? Or can I take you to the doctor? Or can I make an appointment for you? So I think when we talk about empathizing, it's important that we try to become that level of empathetic, you know, where we not only just try to understand or feel the other person's pain, but 
try to really be proactive in asking for ways to to help that person. So I think it's important, even when we are talking about you know business or social entrepreneurship or nonprofit or whatever in these spaces, when we want to help a certain community, it's important to really reach out, understand, do the right research, um, and not just impart our own understanding on them saying that, oh, I think this is your problem and this should be your solution, but rather asking, how do you think I can help you? How can I, and really engaging them in the in the, in the the creation of that solution in that whole process, right? Um, so I think it's important to have that sort of mindset when we are doing, you know, business or social entrepreneurship or something of that sort. Mm. So, so interesting. When was a time where, you've shown great empathy, I guess, you know, has there been a time recently just in your life that you've, you've really felt like you've been able to tap into that third tier, which I love that. Yeah. I love how you broke that down for us. Um, uh, yeah. So for, for example, like, you know, how in the beginning I was, I was sharing with you how I've seen my parents, like always treating people kindly with kindness, very, you know, giving everyone equal treatment regardless of their background. And that's a learning I have received from when I was very young. Um, so my dad used to uh, be, be the manager of this, this fisheries farm. And there was this uh, worker from this, um, uh, he used to take care of the sewer system of the farm, right? And the storage workers, due to the caste system and for the kind of work they do, are actually considered um, as a very, uh, they're not even considered part of the society, unfortunately. And their community is considered like untouchable and un- unclean. And it is, it is it's really a disgrace. So um, I, I remember I was really young at the time and this particular worker, he invited uh, my, my dad um, and, and, and our family to his daughter's birthday party. And my dad actually um, accepted the invite and um, he was like, let's go, let's see. And there's this like one storage workers community. It was near my school, like every day. It's like right in the middle of the, of the town. And I would cross it cross over that um, community um, and go to school every day. And I would just look at it and I, I don't know what's inside. It's like a whole world of its own. I've never been inside. I don't know what goes on, but then it, it seems quite dirty from the outside, right? And so then when I heard that, okay, this is where we're going, I was I was quite intrigued because I would always see it while going to school, right? And my dad was like, yeah, of course, we will definitely go. Like, it's it doesn't matter that, you know, he's a storage worker and I'm his boss or whatever. And we actually happen to be like, my dad happens to be his first boss to ever visit his place. And when we mm-hmm. went there to attend that birthday party, he was just so excited and, you know, thrilled that his boss and his, the, the entire family is coming for the birthday party. And he has made this like huge arrangement for us, like with, you know, with delicious dinner and everything. And it's not just him or his family, but like the entire community became very excited to to welcome us. And when we went there, you know, I I was very young at the time and I just had like such a beautiful experience. But I also noticed like how sort of unhygienic condition that they live in. And at that time, obviously, I had no idea that I at one point I would become a wash activist and I would talk about all these hygiene and cleanliness and all that. And um, probably later I'll talk more about how I came into the wash space. But um, my first wash talk um, was actually at that very storage workers community. Um, It's because of that experience when I saw that and when I learned about that and I felt it is such a disgrace that our society failed to, you know, um, sort of um, appreciate the work that they do and realize the importance of their work. And uh, imagine if there were no storage workers, right? So um, that is when I decided that, no, they need to know about, you know, hand washing and all of that first, which is why I actually remember that I had it in me that if I ever get a chance, I would do something for them. 
And that is really when I did that first wash talk. And eventually I, I built a very good um, trusting relationship with them. I'm still in touch with them. If, whenever I visit my hometown, like I would, I would, uh, you know, keep continue that communication. Like even like during COVID-19, I didn't, I couldn't do anything for them in a concrete in terms of like a project. I was working for another community, but then I did make a visit. You know, and they, every time I visit them, they, they're just so happy because they have seen me from like when I was really young. And now I'm actually, you know, trying to do something for them, you know, understand their problems, trying to bring my knowledge and expertise for their benefit. So I think that is um, like an example where I, I try to exercise my skills of being empathetic. Oh, it's so fascinating, Shomi. And I just think how beautiful that this desire that you have to really help this community and just to help communities in general stem from something that was so personal to you. Can you talk to us a little bit about what happened after that time there? You know, you were obviously very young when you went to the birthday party and you realised at that moment, but how long after that did you really start to get involved in, you know, in, in WASH and become an activist for that and help these communities? And what did that look like right at the beginning? Right. Um, so this, this is actually a long story. Um, <laughs> so after that birthday incident, like nothing really happened. I was just continuing my, you know, school life and usual stuff. And um, but but um, my initial inspiration for doing community service or like giving back to society, all of these actually came from my dad because my father is a Rotarian. So I grew up, you know, seeing him doing different kinds of events and, you know, volunteering and all. Um, and I, I, we even have like, you know, photos in our family album where I'm actually accompanying him to different events. I don't even remember those, right? But I see them in photos. So maybe it had an impact, but, but like subconsciously, I don't know. But um, on the other hand, my mom, uh, she was a beautiful singer. Um, she was a very culture enthusiast kind of person. And she would really want me to try new things, you know, um, go for like the music schools and debate drama, dance, all of that. So I was very active, as I said earlier. And all of these things, so I was involved in um, many community service projects. I was involved like with my school um, to a certain extent. So it was like, I, I would do events like, you know, tree plantation, winter clothes distribution, th those kind of projects. Um, so I, I would exercise those, those skills to a certain extent, but very minimum, uh, minimal uh, level. And, but all of those things helped me get a scholarship when I was uh, 16 years old um, in my 11th grade. So I, it was a state, U.S. State Department scholarship. Uh, it's called the YES program. So I actually got the uh, incredible opportunity to go to um, the U.S. and study and finish my high school, um, do my 12th wow. year as an exchange student um, in, in Michigan. And while I went to the States, that is really where my community service journey took the next level because um, community service or volunteering was not a very common concept at that at that period in my back in my home country. But when I went to the U.S., I saw like how the whole community, like regardless of age, like very young people to very old people, everyone in some sort of way, they try to do volunteering work, which is very fascinating for me at the time. Right. And it was actually part of that program requirements that um, I would have to do 40 hours of community service during my year in the States. So it was uh, part of that organization that I was placed under. Uh, it's called PACS Program of Academic Exchange. Um, and it was the, the whole idea behind this requirement was, you know, just to as a gesture to show my thanks to the community for hosting me, really. So um, like my, I, I started doing volunteering work to like really to a great extent I was involved like with my community church with my youth group with my high school clubs and my local coordinator would organize different kinds of events my host family would organize different kinds of events and I just loved volunteering so much that I would keep you know doing stuff whenever I get a chance I would say yes and so I, I used to be incredibly busy during my um, exchange year so I was very active every day doing something um so by the end of that year, I ended up doing 460 hours of community service. 
where wow. I was supposed to do 40 hours. Um, <laughs> so that was sort of a record. And I received the, the President's Volunteer Service um, Gold Award uh, uh, by President Obama. And that was actually a very important and you know, a defining moment for me because I felt that, okay, it's great that, you know, I came to America, I did all of this stuff, learned, picked up different kind of skills like, you know, leadership, communication, networking, et cetera, et cetera, which is great. Um, I even got the award from the, with the president, which is very cool. But all of these, why did I do all of this? I started reflecting on, on these things, right? That why did I do all of this? To, to thank my, my host community for hosting me. They have been amazing. They opened their home and heart for me. It was, I just had the best year of my life. But what about my own country, which has been hosting me for like forever since I was born, right? <laughs> so what about my country where I truly belong and I have a responsibility towards my country as well as, as, a, as an active, responsible citizen? So that is when I started thinking about you know, how I can bring those skills that I have gotten in the U.S., how can I bring those back to my home country and give back? And, you know, and, and I also saw sort of the differences, obviously, like America, and in many ways, it's a developed country. And, you know, we have a lot of things to work on. And I, I, I could see that, OK, there are many different ways that I can actually give back and work to develop my community. So at one point, like once the program ended, I came back uh, to, to my home country. I was actually, I wanted to be an engineer at that time. I, I was like, maths is still my favorite subject. I got a scholarship. I even got involved in a university in Michigan. And I had initially planned to come back to the States because I would have to come back home anyway to sort of change the visa and everything. It's part of the program. I have to come back. But then I knew that I would go back to the States to start my college. I mean, I always had the idea that I, I want to settle down in my home country and, you know, I want to develop and everything. But I also saw how developed the education system was. So I really wanted to get that engineering degree from, from the U.S. And I also had the scholarship and everything. But when I came back home, my mom started nagging. and She was like, oh, show me. I really miss you. I didn't realize it until you came back. Like, I really missed you a lot while you were away. Um, why don't you just stay back for college here? So I, I was sort of in a dilemma. I didn't know whether to move back to the States. I have like a scholarship and everything ready there. My clothes, my prom dress. Like I've left everything back in the States because I knew I was going back. Right. And on the other hand, my mom is sort of, you know, pulling my string and saying like, oh, stay back. I didn't know what to do. I was very confused. In the end, I decided to stay back for some reason. I, I don't even know why. It's probably just, you know, it's my mom. But I was also a bit mad at her that she didn't sort of let me go, you know, because it's a great opportunity. People look for this kind of opportunities. And I had that. Um, so I got enrolled in a, in a private business school here and I went into a, complete, a different track. So I, I left in my engineering dream. I went for economics. Um, the, the, and the reason behind this was um, because I stayed back, I had to convert my American uh, high school degree to like a Bangladeshi equivalent certificate. I needed some sort of a certificate to apply for universities here. And by the time I got that equivalent certificate, it was too late. So in Bangladesh, you would have to sort of um, uh, like sit for different exams, admission tests and all that. And all of those were over, like all the good schools, uh, you know, were, were done taking university students. So I was a bit mad. I was like, oh, I didn't get into any of those public. I couldn't even try. So now I don't want to go to any private school. OK, I'm just going to go for what, what, what is related to maths. OK, it's economics. So that is sort of how I, I ended up in, in the economics field. But um, at the same time, all those community service, like my passion for community service was still there. Right. So. I got involved, like I immediately got elected as the executive committee member of like that that uh, program's alumni association here in Bangladesh. I um, started getting involved with different clubs in my uh, new university and a lot of different other international and local organizations. So that same thing, actually. So I came back home. Again, whoever would give me an opportunity to serve, I would just go and say yes and volunteer. Like my friends would, you know, pick on me and say, like, show me you hardly have time for your friends to hang out. You're always busy. Even during the weekends, you have something going on. Um, so I was incredibly busy back at home as well, just doing stuff. But I was doing different kinds of things. It's just that I love volunteering, right? 
So I would work on like, you know, um, uh, youth empowerment, women empowerment, gender equality, climate change, uh, you know, different kinds of events. But I didn't have any particular focus at the time. But uh, unfortunately, in 2014, on 14th of April, so almost like a little over seven years ago, my mother suddenly died from diarrhea. Mm. And she was sick for just one day. She went to work even the previous day. And 14th of April is actually the Bengali New Year's Day. And it is the biggest festival in the, in the country. And it was a very, it's a very special day for us as a family as well, because it's like, first of all, like my family is very cultural minded, you know, we would celebrate, we would like celebrate any day we would get a chance to, but um, nationally, like it's the biggest festival. That's one thing. There's a lot of cultural events going on. We would always, you know, spend time as a family during that day. It's like a government holiday, but also it was special because my dad, actually saw my mom the first time on the Bengali New Year's Day many years ago. Mm. So it was a very wow. special day for us. And it's just coincidence that it's also the same day that he saw her the last. And it was just, you know, like my mom, even the day before she was, as I said, she, she loved those cultural events and it, those would start right, right after sunrise. So my mom, you know, did shopping, like she went back from work, she did a lot of shopping for the whole family except for hers god knows why and then she was like show me like she was telling me and my younger sister like um if you girls don't wake up tomorrow early morning you know to see those things um the cultural events i would just go on my own you know, and she really left it's just like now when we think about those those you know moments and it, it just has a completely different meaning now but it's just that everything was normal you know and then the next day she's gone from diarrhea. It's just, it's just so shocking. So my entire family was obviously devastated. It's like when you lose somebody you love, just like that, it's difficult already. But when you know that it's a disease like diarrhea in 21st century and it's a preventable disease, I think it just sort of added on to that pain. And I, I there was a lot of regret and I, I started questioning, you know, my knowledge and I was like, how come? Like, how did this even happen? Is this even possible? So I was doing a lot of research as well on my own, like just Googling stuff. And I, that is really when I got into the whole depth of it. That is when I really, you know, faced those staggering statistics of how my mom is just such a tiny part of this whole scenario, right? Because she's my mom, it's like my entire world was crushed. But over 50,000, 45,000 people actually die from diarrhea alone in Bangladesh every year. And it's not just a problem within my country, but it's a global problem. So that is really when I, I mean, diarrhea is just a symptom, right? But then what are the root causes of it? That is when I got to know about like, clean water, sanitation, hygiene, the whole wash space, and how 60% of the world's population, like 4.5 billion people, more than half the world's population, don't have access to proper sanitation services. There are still people who are defecating out in the open. And diarrhea happens to be the second leading cause of death for children under age five. So when I was reading all of these stats, you know, I was I was just so baffled. And I, I felt like I, coming from an educated family, an educated well-off background, if I couldn't save my mother because I was just not sincere about these things, and I never had issues in terms of access to sanitation. We have had toilets, we have had water, you know, but still I couldn't save my mother. And and we guess that, you know, the day before when she was like coming home from work, probably she has had something, it has something to do with street food or something like that. But that that is probably what triggered that contamination. But she is dead and we can't bring her back. But I was thinking of those families, those, you know, those sewerage workers, those communities um, who are very vulnerable and marginalized and don't have access to basic facilities and awareness and education. What about them? And I, I was going through so much pain and I felt how, I mean, I can't help this really. I can't bring my mom back, but how can I save other people from going through that same pain, that same emotion, that same regret that is going to haunt me all my life. So four days after my mom's death, 
I did that first wash talk at that shortage workers community. And it was definitely difficult, you know, going up on stage, holding a microphone, talking to people about my personal experiences. It was obviously very, very difficult. But I also realized the incredible power of storytelling, like how people connect more to stories than to numbers, than to statistics. Because that is when they can really put themselves in my shoes, right? They will, when I talk to them about one mother, one mother-daughter relationship, they will probably think of their own mom or dad or their daughter or their, you know, like their own, somebody they love. And they can actually feel the emotion from where I would talk about those things. And then when people can actually zoom out and see the macro picture, you know, then it's easier to realize the gravity of that problem, the magnitude of that problem. Because usually, I mean, all of these 45,000, 4.5 billion, like we are sort of born and become immune to numbers, I think. There are so many problems around us. So that is when I realized the potential impact I could bring through my wash talks. So that is really how I became a wash activist uh, with no plan whatsoever in the beginning. I just somehow came to this space like that. And uh, eventually I met my, my co-founder, who is now my best friend. His name is Ridgvi Arifin. And we you know, gave it sort of a structured um, form. And eventually it became an organization, which is now Awareness 360. Wow, Shomi, thank you so much for being so open with us and sharing with us your story. Oh, my goodness. Our peers out there listening can't see us, but I've just been nodding along the whole time and we so appreciate how open and real you've been and you are. Wow. For our peers out there listening that sometimes get overwhelmed by the statistics or by, you know, all of the horror that's happening in the world right now, and they feel like they really, as much as they want to help or as much as they may have a desire to, they're struggling to even know where to start. You know, what would your advice be to them? It, it is true that it can get overwhelming and usually we have a tendency to you know, whenever we see something is wrong in the society, in our surroundings, I mean, it's the human nature, like we try to rant about it, you know, we complain and you know, we talk about it with maybe our friends and family that, oh, why is this like this? Why is this not like that? Right. But and it's it's difficult to take that first step because sometimes we we judge our own uh, capability. It's and it's normal. It's completely OK. And also we have the wrong parameters of success established in our society because maybe we think that, OK, if we want to bring change, we would have to build like a big organization or a nonprofit or do a business and, you know, make that first hit project or sale or whatever it is. Um, or get like big awards or recognition. So we probably think big, which is, I mean, it's good, but then it also sometimes stops us from taking that first step. So I think what's important to reiterate here is that it's okay to start small. It's okay to fail. It's okay to, you know, um, not have that first hit project. And we will learn by doing, it's normal. So I think it's important to identify our passion first. We also have a tendency to, to sort of sometimes we have, um, you know, a, a tendency to like solve multiple things at the same time. If you if you can, it's great. But then you don't always have to do too many things at the same time. You can pick one cause. There are so many problems. If we think about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, there are 17 goals. Obviously, for one person, it's too much. We can't target all 17 together. They're all sort of interconnected. Anyway, if you're solving one, it's probably having an effect on another cause anyway. But it's important to identify our passion and pick one cause that, you know, you most deeply care about or you're mostly like this is something I have been saying since my TEDx talk. Find your passion in what bothers you, because sometimes we connect our passion with something that gives us, you know, happiness or joy, like you love doing music, you're passionate about playing piano and whatnot. But I think we can also find our passion in things that really bug us so much that it keeps you up at night, right? That you really want this to change. But then instead of just thinking of who can change, you be the change, you start with yourself and start doing that first. Like if, if you are, if you care about, let's say, hand washing, why not people wash hands? You don't have to 
start with like teaching 500 people how to wash hands. You can start with your own family members, right? Like the, the person who maybe helps you at, 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 at your home. You start with that person. Um, so we can always, it's important that we start small, but we start immediately at that moment. And then we can definitely, there are so many resources available, things because of technology, because of the internet, things are really, you know, at our fingertips. So we can always research and, you know, study and watch videos and whatnot and really understand the depth of things that cause, really understand so that we are not wasting our time and efforts on the symptoms, on, on solving the pro symptoms, but really you know, diving deep into the root causes. So I think it's okay to be a little overwhelmed, but we can always start things small. But then eventually we will learn and grow and, you know, maybe you will entirely change your strategy. That's even possible. But it's important to take that first initial step. Such valuable advice. Was there ever a time where you felt like you hesitated and you were super scared to take that first step? Um, actually, yes. Um, so uh, at Awareness 360, uh, we we have been working with like different um, different communities, really. Like, and and they're all like very like last mile and you know hard to reach kind of communities and communities who are usually neglected and often you know left behind. People hardly think about them. Uh, communities like the storage workers, as I've talked about before, the sex workers community, you know, the refugees, the uh, people with disabilities, like all of these different vulnerable and marginalized communities. But um, the sex workers community, uh, actually prostitution is um, technically, it's, it's legal in our country, um, but because we are a Muslim majority population, over 90% of the population um, is Muslim in Bangladesh. And because of different religious and social and cultural different uh, barriers or understandings, I would say, sex workers community, they are, uh, you know, they face a lot of stigma. They're, they're, they're like one of the most neglected communities out there. Um, they're, 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 they live in such a condition, like they're not given the proper you know, respect that any human do, deserve. And the sad part is not a question about whether it's right or wrong, whether it should be legal or illegal, but 90% of the sex workers are actually um, forced into this profession. They're usually uh, victims of human trafficking or sex trafficking. And... Um, so this is a community that we wanted to tap on and we wanted to, because we, we did some research and we found that they live in extremely unhygienic condition and um, they're like things like menstrual hygiene, for example, you know, they don't maintain those things because they're unaware and nobody thinks about them, right? And um, underage girls are being trafficked to these brothels and because they're underage, obviously they don't look like adults and they are forced to take pills which are typically used for fattening cows um, so that they look more like shapely or, or voluptuous like this is sort of the situation they're in and they have no idea or they have maybe and they don't have that courage or that situation to share and get out of that space so we wanted to help these girls right but our primary agenda was sanitation and hygiene and talking about those you know um, protective uh, measures and all that but when we when we first decided that we want to work with this community, it wasn't that easy. And I was so um, skeptical about whether we would actually be able to do it or not, because it is such a risky community to work with. Um, you know, there are all kinds of people in those brothels. There are like uh, over 20 legal brothels here and like millions of floating sex workers. And it is so hard. Like, it's not like I say that, okay, I want to do a wash talk at a brothel tomorrow and I can just walk in, right? It's not like that. So you need to have a proper channel established and access mechanism. And, you know, we were facing challenges like our volunteers were, they, even, even if they were interested to do the projects, to, to, to volunteer, but their parents, it's embarrassing because of the whole stigma and all that, right? So, um, and we needed, obviously, we needed like police protection uh, to, to get, get police protection. We needed to get the permission from like the local district commissioner. And, you know, this the whole thing is so bureaucratic and, you know, getting the permission. It was like a whole robust process. And when we finally managed all of that, like even my own dad, like my dad is like the most supportive person in my life. He never said no to anything. But when it came to this community, he was a bit 
concerned about my safety. It was like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you even at that stage? Because like even like bigger organizations don't dare to take this kind of steps. Are you sure you want to do this? Right. So there was a lot of hesitation, a lot of questioning whether we can or not. Right. And finally, when we solved sort of all of that and we managed all of these, our volunteers and police protection and permission and all of that bureaucratic stuff were dealt with. The brothel we chose was like five hours drive from my city. And it's like, you know, with all the traffic and all, it took like six hours ish. And we had to make multiple trips like in one week just to convince the madams who sort of control the young girls because they don't want outsiders in. They're afraid of, you know, all of those things that go on inside would come out. And what if we, you know, leak some of those information and it hampers their business. So there's a lot of things there, right? And they did not want us to go in and do that wash project. Um, And we had to make multiple trips just to convince them that we're not here to do anything with their business, just here to talk about basic things like sanitation, hand washing, menstruation, very basic stuff. We're not going to talk about anything else. And there was like so many girls are working there who their families don't know. So they were very, um, you know, um, skeptical about taking pictures and documentation and proper reporting of the project. That was also difficult for us. But anyways, um, when we finally convinced the madams and we went to do that project, we at first there was a bit of like they were not listening to us properly. You know, they were sort of in their own little rooms. They were not coming out. So there was a lot of barriers there, too. So we had to sort of change strategy, sort of instantly change our agenda. And you know how we like build a stage to do that project. But we couldn't even do that on the night before, because usually at night they you know get, they get drunk and you know, they, they might break the state. So we had to go really early in the morning and ensure everything is in place. It was very difficult, even logistics wise. And then we had to, when we saw that they're not really connecting with us, we started talking in like local dialects so that they connect with us. We played like very hardcore local music, the genre that I generally won't listen to, but just so that they can connect and they feel that we're not any aliens or anything. We're just people like them. So we played music, we let them go on the stage and dance and sing. And But then at the end of the day, we played games and quizzes. So it wasn't like our general wash talk. It was a very different approach. The delivery was different. And at the end of the day, it was just so beautiful and heartwarming because they had fun, the genuine fun after so many years in their life. And when we did some after project like survey and we we saw like the poster we gave them, it was still stuck up on their wall. And it's a huge indication of success because from communities like this, we expected they would just throw it away, right? And after the project is over, but they actually understood those concepts and started practicing and behavioral change is our ultimate goal. And shifting mindset is a long-term process. But when we went back after like three months, six months, you know, we've maintained those communication and now we have built a beautiful friendship with them. And even during COVID-19, now that the whole world is talking about washing hands, things that we have even been mocked for at one period, right? Because, because people just didn't take those things seriously. Now, when we went back during the lockdown, they were suffering a lot. Nobody was thinking about the sex workers community. And obviously, their point of business is like based on physical contact. And it's a contagious virus we are dealing with. So they're like, they were devastated. They were, they were literally, they were dying from hunger more like they were more concerned about dying from hunger than from COVID-19 so when we we you know fundraised and we gave them like food and hygiene supplies and we did some wash awareness like just revisiting those things and they were like oh sister remember like four years ago you came and taught us this and now we see this on tv and radio and everything so they still remember and they you know they value those and that is what put but like puts like a huge smile on our face because it feels like, okay, all of those challenges were worth it, even though we were doubting us in the beginning. But now it's, it's just, it's, it's great to feel that, you know, we have given them those knowledge beforehand and now they feel a bit more safe. It's absolutely incredible, Shami, honestly. Uh, half of this talk, I've just been shaking my head in disbelief that you were able to conquer that challenge you know, despite all of the self-doubt and I guess all of the doubt that you receive from everyone around you, it's just so amazing to see. 
Oh my goodness, we could talk for days, but I am mindful of your time. And so I have a few final questions for you. And the first one is, how do we overcome self-doubt? Um, well, it's, it's sort of circling back to the same thing. Like, it's important to take that initial step. I mean, we have to do that. Otherwise, we will never know our own potential. We will never know how much we can do, right? Like, I started with that one one little project, right? And now it's like a whole big organization. Like, it's been seven years Awareness 360 is now working, like we have empowered like over thousands of um, young people. We are working across 23 countries now. We have, you know, we have like a very beautiful global community. And now we're doing so many things. We have like benefited about like 150,000 people. But if I look back seven years ago, you know, when I started, when I just started learning about sanitation and hand hygiene and all that, did I like ever realize that I could do all of those stuff, right? Like, did I ever realize I could empower all these young people across the world with, you know, the skills, the tools, the things that they, now I am not even having to do much because my team is doing so much already, right? And it's just like from my personal experience, I've seen like how I used to, even like growing up and establishing myself as a social impact entrepreneur in a patriarchal society, I have continuously faced you know, judgments. And, you know, I was asked to get married when my mom died. I was asked to, you know, um, like so many things, like I was asked to concentrate on my degree and not on volunteering because it's a waste of time and you're not earning anything. So many questions, right? If I had listened to those comments and if I had actually cared about those comments and judgments and I stopped myself from doing what I have done, I would never made all of these impact and done all of these things that I have I was able to do. So overcoming self-doubt, it really has to be with that, start with that initial action step. And eventually we will we will learn and we will grow. And obviously we can take inspiration from so many others uh, around us. We can definitely take inspiration from them. And, and there is like, we're never too young and never too old to be change makers. Right. And there are so many ways to give back to our society, to do something good for the for the society, for the environment. There are so many different causes to work on. So I think it's really important to to just to just start. I mean, it just sounds very <laughs> cliche, but it's important to take that first step. And eventually we will understand uh, our own potential and how much we can do. And, and if you're too reluctant to start something on your own just get a friend right they start with your own people with your own friends who trust you right and then do start things together it's also important in a you know when we talk about like change makers and you know entrepreneurs and all that we just we have this tendency to work and work and work and because we want to change the world but it's also important to have our own mental peace and well-being and we we should be considerate about us as well and this is something i'm working on myself and uh it's important to have a support system. Get a mentor, you know, talk to one, your advisor, your teacher, your friend, your junior, or like whoever is around you, you think you can comfortably share your feelings with and then start working on those causes together. So yeah, I think that's like the best way to overcome self-doubt. It's, it's a process. It's not like one quick tip or strategy. It's, it's really a process. <laughs> Oh, that it is. It is a process, but though you articulated that so well, Shami. I just want to take a moment as we come to the close of today's episode to acknowledge you, Shami, for the incredible work that you've done and that you're doing, you know, over the last seven years, you know, for showing us, in particularly us, you know, young females and women of colour, that if we have that vision, that goal and that dream to make an impact, to make a difference in whatever form that comes, it is possible for us to achieve that. You know, it's not impossible. And you show us that through your amazing work. And for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Michelle, for your kind words. Of course. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Um, The value. I would say it's it's... I don't know if it's exactly a value, but I would say it's resilience um, because I want people to, if the, there's something that I want 
others to take away from my journey and my experiences is the value or the skill of resilience that how we can overcome adversity and how we can convert our um, adverse situation to something powerful, to something meaningful, um, where, you know, you take an intervention, you take a step, and you are not the only beneficiary of that outcome, but somebody else, at least one more person or a community is also being benefited by that intervention so that you're changing someone's pain point to a gain point. So I guess, yeah, resilience and never giving up and never, um, you know, just being upset and, and, and really being ground into an adverse situation because challenges will always come. Uh, so it's, it's, it's important, but it's not like people deal with grief in different sorts of ways. So I'm not totally not saying that everybody has to do what I did, but I'm just saying that maybe this could be um, something that they can take away is that to be resilient at adverse times. Love it. Amazing, Shobi. Thank you so much. You're absolutely incredible. And we so appreciate you. Where can we learn more about you and your work? Um, so I can be uh, reached on social media. I'm quite active on like Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, and I go by Preva Shomi, P-R-E-V-A, Preva Shomi. Um, and on LinkedIn, it's Shomi Hassan Choudhury, my full name. And if uh, somebody wants to like join our organization or wants to support us in any way, then uh, we can also be found on socials again um, by Awareness360. Uh, and we are quite active, so we will definitely respond. <laughs> Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again, Shami. It's been absolutely awesome. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest beer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review we produce with passion and it doesn't stop here to see what else we're up to visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on instagram at thepeersproject we'll have fresh real talk for you next week peers until then if you need inspiration look amongst 